Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Joseph Alexiou talks about the Gowanus Canal Conservancy and the history behind its efforts to clean up this extraordinarily polluted waterway. First colonized by the Dutch, who used their knowledge and experience with irrigation to farm this tidal estuary and salt marsh, the Gowanus became in the mid-1800s an industrial dumping ground, home to dozens of companies that poured their waste into the old creek for the next hundred years. By the mid-1900s, it served mainly as a place for barges to temporarily dock to kill the barnacles or any other sea life attached to their hulls. But in the 1970s and later, local residents and leaders began to push for redevelopment and rehabilitation of the area, work the Conservancy carries on today. Drawing on his experiences living in and reporting on Gowanus and the cleanup efforts, work that culminated in a recent book, Alexiou here uses the organization to discuss not only the history of the canal, but its future. For more podcasts like this and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. Seen from above, the Gowanus Canal stretches like an arm of the sea, almost two miles towards the historical center of the village of Brooklyn, curving southeastwards before righting itself again. Appendix-like basins jut out on one side of the canal, some of them invisible, having been filled in with debris and toxic waste and other New York landfill sometime after World War II. In its current state, it is an urban oddity, the remnants of an industrial past long abandoned and until recently forgotten and neglected. Stepping back to 1636, when Dutch settlers began farming the land around it, the Gowanus was called a creek, and it had a square mile of salt marsh surrounding it, a true wetland teeming with life. And although humankind hollowed it out and made it into a sewer, a shipping lane, and then a dumping ground, it is still a tidal estuary whose current is determined entirely by the movement of the ocean. The Dutch settlers, who brought a lot to New York or New Amsterdam of the 17th century, those who lived in the low countries knew how to manage water. And so the flooded meadows and marshlands of the Gowanus Canal had excellent potential. The first Dutch mills ever constructed in the colony of New Netherlands were in Gowanus. And those mill ponds, which were dug by African slaves, they would fill up with water during high tide and be cut off from the sea by a gate that would reopen when the waters were in low tide, and that water wheel would connect to a millstone, and that would grind grain and corn and chickpeas, which were the first proto-industries of Gowanus. But by the mid-19th century, these old Dutch mills were ancient structures. The original skyline of Gowanus that recalled an earlier bucolic countryside that disappeared rapidly after the incorporation of Brooklyn as a city in 1834. The canal was dug out and connected to Brooklyn's first sewer system in 1856. By 1880, about 50 years after the incorporation of Brooklyn, the Gowanus Canal would be lined on either side of her banks with factories and lumber yards and brickyards and the belching smokestacks of 50 different kinds of industries, chemical production plants, dye and paint and all kinds of creosote, cream of tartar. But most of all, it was the manufacturing of gas from coal, which heated and lit the homes of Brooklyn's and the street lamps during the Industrial Age. And that manufactured gas presence in Brooklyn was so great that the Gowanus area was also known as the Gaslight District. But the slow decline of urban manufacturing after World War II left Gowanus abandoned, and the water and the land around it were poisoned with toxic waste and the raw sewage of 100,000 Brooklynites a fact that remains true to this day, since the Brooklyn sewers still dump 
three to 400 million gallons of raw sewage into the canal every year. Barge captains used to famously sail their boats into the water to kill the barnacles and clean the bottoms off of their hulls. And that is practically true of every truly polluted waterway, barge way in America. But the Gowanus Canal did a great job because the water was so toxic that no life could live there. These days, that neighborhood is in transition again. The once abandoned factory buildings have now long been occupied by artists and manufacturers, different commercial businesses and now offices. And the explosion of Brooklyn's real estate into the world level market makes neglected neighborhoods the height of luxury living in very quick turnover. Today, it's fancy restaurants and a Whole Foods. However, in 1999, Third Avenue was abandoned storefronts and streetwalkers. Bond Street, arguably the other border of Gowanus, was basically a target range for organized crime in the 1970s. And now it has 12-story glass towers that overlook the Gowanus Canal. The turnover, in a way, for this part of Brooklyn, it started in around 1999. The neighborhood started to become a place that families would settle. And soon, as Carroll Gardens filled up, as Park Slope filled up, the least desirable area in between these two very fancy neighborhoods now, Gowanus, became of interest to the people that look five and ten years ahead to the real estate trends that determine the shape of our city. And so now graffiti and figurative wall murals share the same spaces in Gowanus and an endless stream of passersby, joggers, baby carriages. These Brooklynites are out for a stroll, crossing historic landmark bridges where there used to be no foot traffic at all. And when you walk there now, you can imagine the cacophony of traffic in 1890 in the form of horses and carts and bridge operators yelling, barge captains, whistles, screaming, children, dock workers heaving packages from every corner of the world right into the heart of Brooklyn. There are still empty lots in Gowanus, but they are all spoken for, whether or not it's owned by the city or private developers. They are all poised to act on an impending rezone that will absolutely change the skyline of Gowanus once again. I moved to the neighborhood called Gowanus by accident in 2006. I was a plucky 22-year-old journalist. I had recently moved from Paris where I had worked on a travel guide, but I was hungry for work and stories in New York. And I had found this cheap apartment on Bond Street and Third Street in what I know now to be Gowanus. And I signed the papers and then the realtor said, oh, by the way, there's this canal around the corner and it's pretty polluted, but don't worry about it. So I couldn't have been more delighted because when I got down to the dock at the end of 2nd Street, a half block from where I live, I said to myself, where the hell am I? How is this New York City? And there were warehouses, graffiti, and those cool sort of gritty scenes that you imagine, you know, after watching Law & Order. But this waterway, that was not the New York that I knew. And there was all this sky. And I thought, uh, where did this come from? How did it get here? And how polluted is this? And so this history nerd in me started to ask these questions. And to my luck and delight, the many neighbors in the area who were always out and about had been asking the same questions for 50 years, and they had a lot of answers. We're talking about people who had been in the same homes for three generations, and they told me about stickball and falling into a black soup and looking at abandoned buildings, exploring them, and then getting into trouble with the police. And then among these people, there were also activists and artists, people who are curious about the canal for the way it looked and for its stories. And so it became very important to me because it started to be my identity. It was where I lived in New York, and it was a weird place that people didn't really know where it was. And if they did, then they were cool. And if they didn't, then I got to teach them about it. So it was like the ideal place for someone to discover themselves. 
I learned to be an adult in that neighborhood. And because of the real estate interest that the neighborhood began to have around the time that I was living there, I was able to tell stories about what was going on in Gowanus. And that's kind of how I broke into a journalism that wasn't about travel. It was all about place, but it was about a place that I lived that I could see myself staying for the rest of my life. So I was able to sell stories about not only the real estate, but the toxic waste in the land that was surrounding the canal itself, which these developers wanted to dig up to replace with shiny new buildings to house the thousands of people that come to New York every year. So my interest that became a, a source for material developed into an obsession that somehow turned into a narrative nonfiction book that I am still astounded that it exists today at all. But it feels like my entire writing career, which spanned from, again, travel guides and magazines and even tour guiding, which requires a lot more research than some people might appreciate, was leading up to the publication of this book. And so now I am the Gowanus Canal guy. But at any rate, on that same street end that I discovered in 2006, that was just degraded and full of graffiti and homeless people slept there. Um, and there was a Law & Order episode that shot on that block. Well, now at the street end, there's a new piece of unique kind of landscape architecture, and it's called the Gowanus Canal Sponge Park. And it's about the size of a small truck. And it is just a planter, basically. And it collects. This is an engineered waterfront park. And its function, aside from looking nice, is to soak up the stormwater runoff like the cleaning tool it's named after, and it's supposed to filter water, but ultimately stop the flow of rainwater from getting into the canal because it contains contaminated street runoff, toxic waste. And if we stop toxic water from entering an already overburdened sewer system, then we will have less overflow, less feces pouring into this waterway that people canoe in and even fish in, and people live near most of all. When construction of the Sponge Park finished, uh, members of the Gowanus Canal Conservancy, which is a Brooklyn-based nonprofit environmental organization, celebrated what was probably their greatest victory to date. The Gowanus Canal Conservancy, which I will refer to as the GCC, is not only in the business of sponsoring small sponge parks. It was founded in 2006, and the Conservancy is, according to their website, dedicated to the facilitation and the development of a resilient, vibrant open space network centered on the Gowanus Canal through activating and empowering community stewardship of the Gowanus watershed. So the watershed of Gowanus is an important term because it means not only the Gowanus area, but the place where all of the rainfall in Brooklyn ultimately ends up at the Gowanus Canal if you're in the right spot. So anywhere that the water runs downhill to Gowanus is its watershed. So that includes all of Carroll Gardens and the Barclay Center and all of Park Slope are all at the top of the Gowanus watershed. In addition to the GCC sponsoring the Sponge Park, which included the initial designs, coordinating a dozen governmental organizations, and securing congressional funding, the Conservancy also seeks to promote environmental stewardship from the community and seeks to educate the community about the Gowanus Canal's natural environment. And so this mainly includes grassroots volunteer projects, which begin with site cleaning, neighborhood composting, tree stewardship, and collecting environmental data for community use. They maintain relationships with governmental agencies, the elected officials, and the community members to advocate for, build, and maintain innovative green infrastructure around the Gowanus Canal. So following the Second World War, the Gowanus Canal and its surrounding neighborhood was in a steady decline. 
In the 1870s, the canal had been a highly trafficked industrial shipping thoroughfare, and after nearly a century of pollution, heavy industry fled American cities for car-accessible suburbs, and the Gowanus was just one of many pieces of infrastructure which were literally just left to rot. The industrial loft buildings and architecture, the weird street ends and bridges, these were an anachronism during the 20th century. They reminded people of a past that they thought they had moved on from. Only into the following century did post-industrial neighborhoods really find their identity as a crash for what they call urban creative culture. And this really did begin in the 1970s during the revival of places like Soho. But by 1980, Soho was already too expensive for most artists, and so a lot of them moved to places like Gowanus. Grassroots civic groups like the GCC often form in these conditions. And this one is taking on a really huge task. It's trying to raise awareness of the environmental condition of a truly polluted and neglected toxic urban space. Merging these ideas of urban space and environment might seem kind of counterintuitive, but that's only because we seem to forget often enough that cities are actually placed on top of naturally occurring landscapes and active ecologies. Try as we might to forget the existence of nature, Urban dwelling humans, especially coastal ones, are reminded of the truth of the power of nature when huge storms flood and destroy our homes and businesses. With world culture increasingly interested in the environment and science and community resiliency during these troubled times, it is only natural that an utterly unique urban environment like the Gowanus Canal would self-create and gender its own stewards. And this is also a very Brooklyn kind of thing. People are weird and creative and they want to get together and talk about these things. And what better way to meet your neighbors than to pick up garbage next to a toxic waste site? It's also a flood zone. But by attempting to understand the current state of this landscape and the people that go there and enjoy to be there, questions asked by groups like the GCC bring about underexplored areas of study, and that is urban environmental history. The many fingers of the Gowanus Creek that once stretched into the gently flooding meadows at the bottom of a chain of hills, also had freshwater springs pouring into them. And these Gowanus banks therefore hosted what we call brackish water, and that was the ideal place to grow oysters. And oysters were once the most famous byproduct of Gowanus. And it took more than two centuries of human development and many wars before industrialism replaced agricultural colonists, and the creek was dug up and reshaped into a modern shipping canal. But those oysters remain kind of a symbol of Gowanus. If you go back to Brooklyn Daily Eagle newspaper in the 1840s, one of the few ads with an image as opposed to just a text is for Gowanus Canal, or rather a Gowanus Creek Mill Pond oyster. And it was sold by uh, a Mr. Van Brunt, which is the name of a street in Red Hook, and that is a Dutch family that settled here in the 1620s. By 1922, it was illegal to grow oysters in New York Bay because of all the raw sewage that had been poured into it by things like the Gowanus Canal. And at this time, when industrial life took over America, the creek was again dug up and shaped into this flood drain and then eventually a raw sewage dumping ground. Today's best-known Gowanus byproduct is not oysters, but something called black mayonnaise, which is a combination of raw sewage and toxic waste, mostly coal tar, but also something called non-aqueous phase liquid and benzene and mercury and a thousand other cancer-causing materials. And uh, black mayonnaise, as it's described, is an invented term by the EPA, which is the main pollutant that lines the bottom of the canal. It is approximately 10 feet thick in most spots, and it extends across the entire 1.8 miles of the canal. 
uh, about 100 feet wide. So we're talking millions of cubic feet of toxic waste, which needs to be dredged and removed to call this canal even remotely remediated. It is these polluted conditions, really, that brought about the creation of the GCC in 2006. Now, truly, this group didn't really begin in 2006. Its origins start nearly 30 years ago. The GCC was actually formed by members of the Environmental Committee of something called the Gowanus Canal Community Development Corporation, or the GCCDC. This community organization, which is also a nonprofit, began as a private group in 1978 by a Carroll Gardens neighborhood fixer named Salvatore Buddy Scotto, who was hoping to promote the possibility of developing the terribly poor neighborhood around this putrid toxic waste site that had been a community embarrassment for as long as he could remember. But in the mid-1970s, as many people remember, uh, New York City faced great hardships, bankruptcy, crime, neighborhood degradation, and this was especially true for the odiferous neighborhood surrounding the Gowanus. And Scotto, whose family owned real estate in what was then known as South Brooklyn, and then by 1964, Carroll Gardens, hoped to attract big developers to these empty lots and abandoned factories around the stinking, sewer-smelling canal. But he felt that if developers were willing to invest, then perhaps they could get the city to clean up the pollution and stop raw sewage from flowing into the canal and therefore into the ocean, which is a totally wonderful way to contribute to your community. And so therefore, Scotto remains a fixture and important character in this colorful neighborhood. And he would never admit this, but he wields enormous power. For many years, local politicians knew that if they wanted to get elected in Carroll Gardens, they talked to Buddy Scotto and his voice meant a vote. He will also talk to anybody that's interested in history, and he clearly has a great affection for the Gowanus. Once you get him started talking, you would hear about four decades of American history, as seen by a person who felt it was a responsibility to be present in the community he grew up in, even if he moved out to the suburbs, which is what we used to call the area known as Bay Ridge. But he's still around Gowanus and Carroll Gardens all the time. And until recently, he went to the Scotto family funeral home, which he ran for many years every day. Now, one of his greatest accomplishments regarding the canal was securing federal funding in the 1980s to build a new sewage treatment plant, which was supposed to address and ultimately remediate the huge amount of raw sewage that pours into the canal whenever it rains too heavily. Now, to understand this, we have to understand the history of sewer construction in America. And what I mean by that is that the Industrial Revolution brought about all kinds of development that we just never had before. And in America, there had never been a pre-designed urban sewer system. It was always a piecemeal bunch of you know open lines that were covered and eventually connected to each other. And that's how you get the collect pond and all these very dirty places in New York. Well, the Gowanus was a uh, part of Brooklyn and Brooklyn was this new modern city that was gonna be laid out and planned properly. And so they hired the, the most advanced kind of engineer that existed to build a sewer system. And that was a railroad engineer. And that's who worked the most, were railroad engineers. So the one engineer that designed Brooklyn's sewer system wrote a huge treatise on urban sewer design, which became the textbook for urban sewer design for like 100 years in America. And he claims that Brooklyn is the first sewer system to be pre-designed. And he also says that, and this is several years after he did his design, the treatise that he wrote explains his biggest mistakes. And one of them is the combined sewer system. And what that is, is a sewer system in which the water pipes that collect rainwater and the sewer pipes that collect toilet water and sink water 
ultimately go to the same pipe. And now that pipe is supposed to go to a sewage treatment plant. Now in 1850, a sewage treatment plant was also known as the ocean. And so that's where all of the sewage went. Now it's supposed to go to a sewage treatment plant in reality. The pipes are too narrow to accommodate all of the water that flows into them every time it rains. And so it has to go to an emergency exit because if there is no emergency exit, it goes into the street or into people's homes again. So instead it flows into one of 12 outfalls into the Gowanus Canal. And that remains true to this day. So Buddy Scotto's plan was, well, if we get another sewage treatment plant instead of the one down in Owlshead Park, miles away, then the sewage won't overflow and we won't have any more problems. And so he managed to secure hundreds of millions of dollars in federal funding, not by himself, but through various political... It's a whole story. You should talk to him, really. Uh, but uh, he managed to secure this plant. And uh, the sewage treatment plant was called the Red Hook Sewage Treatment Plant because it was supposed to be in Red Hook. But it is in the Brooklyn Navy Yard because of, effectively, uh, the people in Red Hook, which is just a peninsula adjacent to the Gowanus Canal, had been so neglected for so long by the same powers that neglected Gowanus that they objected to having a sewage treatment plant in their neighborhood, which one can understand. And so it ended up in the Brooklyn Navy Yard but it is still called the Red Hook Sewage Treatment Plant to confuse people, I think, because that is the logic of New York. However, unfortunately, Buddy did not really succeed in fixing the sewage problem. It's not really his fault. The volume of the raw sewage from 1856 to today is not something that a sewage treatment plant can fix. Unfortunately, this pattern of spending public money on this problem of the Gowanus Canal is actually echoed continuously through history. And that is because, ultimately, it always comes down to money. In 1880, the city attempted to clean the worst outfalls on the Gowanus by connecting a sewer to a water main that had collected rainwater, and they wanted to flush the canal with this rainwater. And they would say, this rainwater will not pass through any of the raw sewage, and it's going to be great, and an engineer designed it. And so an engineer designed it, they give it to the city to do, they say it's too expensive, they cut some corners, and eventually they come out with a sewer that causes even more problems than it did when it started. The same kind of pattern seems to be the case with this raw sewage treatment plant. They put some money into it, they made some designs, but ultimately they did not do enough to fix the problem. Now, I like to say that all of these problems are actually the result of progress. Even the pollution in the Gowanus Canal was just an attempt for humankind to control its environment and create the opportunities to grow families and jobs and the lives that we wish to pursue, and in our case, the pursuit of happiness, which is, uh, by the way, the only country in the world to guarantee the pursuit of happiness, which I believe is an Eddie Izzard uh, line, but it's a truism that I think is correct. We pursue things in a way that other countries don't expect at all to even have, you know, but that's cultural. Ultimately, this canal, as it was born in America, was at the commercial center of this country, that is to say New York City. And Brooklyn at the time was growing faster at a more exponential rate than New York City, which is to say that the housing was growing at a faster rate. And so the materials that were being delivered through the Gowanus Canal created Brownstone Brooklyn and Red Brick Brooklyn and all of the now celebrated shapes and sizes and skylines that define this area. The Gowanus Canal ultimately created 
the look of this neighborhood by providing a cheap and easy place to deliver all this very heavy material. Scotto in the 1970s decided he was going to use the canal the way it had always been used. And so he got politicians on boats and he led bus tours over the bridges and got these prominent political guys and ex rich developers to check out this stinking uh, wasteland of empty lots. Because of this, because of his stewardship, he was invited to participate in the Partnership for the New York City, which was a high-powered private development organization that was spearheaded by philanthropist David Rockefeller during a time of great economic upheaval in New York. And he got a former administrator uh, and developer named Jerome Kretschmer interested in something called the Dollar Dye Factory Building, which was a building on Court Street that used to be a dye factory not too far from the Gowanus Canal. When they saw, when Scotto saw this dye factory building and how it might be potentially converted into apartments for people to live in, the Gowanus Canal Development Corporation was created and set in motion, and its job was to promote the investment into crumbling real estate of Carroll Gardens and Gowanus, and also infrastructure in the community. Within a year, the organization promoted affordable apartments for middle-income families in the Dye Factory building. They advertised in major newspapers. They were seeking out grants from federal housing, from uh, the Federal Bureau of Housing and Urban Development, also known as HUD. But it was the problems and concerns of the Gowanus Canal that created the need for a group like the GCCDC. And the way that they would address the pollution was to use New York's most ubiquitous industry, real estate, as a tool to get people to fix the neighborhood. And so for the next 30 years, Buddy Scotto and his group uh, were the primary neighborhood development organizations that politicians, developers, and community members courted to access what was going on with the land surrounding this big urban question mark, the Gowanus Canal. And so this included scientific inquiries. In fact, the intersection of real estate and environmental science made the GCCDC a platform from which Buddy Scotto ruled as the self-described mayor of Gowanus, acting as its big biggest advocate for cleanup and development and the greatest source of information about what was going on there. Numerous community development projects emerged from the GCCDC, but throughout the 80s and 90s, other advocacy groups did arise and so there are many groups like the GCCDC all over New York, nonprofit urban and community development groups, which were created by locals during the 1970s to help develop the failing local economies. Few are created, however, around the question of environmental issues, and few environmentally questionable spaces have attracted such interest from developers as Gowanus. Beyond its original mission, the GCCDC became this place for inquiry about how the neighborhood public spaces should be developed and the state of the land itself, mainly because there were a few other places to turn. And one of the functions of the GCCDC came to be how to examine the question of just how polluted is this canal? The studies that emerged from there inviting local chemists and scientists published some truths that continue to plague us today, and that is that there are many horrible pathogens in the Gowanus Canal, like cholera and yellow fever and Entronachus and E. coli and Gonachus, which is the bacteria that causes gonorrhea. And of course, in the canal is a huge volume of fecal coliform, which is the word that scientists use to describe the disbursement of feces in water, for which there is an acceptable level and an illegal level. And the Gowanus has long violated the human illegal level since we started polluting it around 1860. But figuring out what's going on with the environmental problems of an urban canal 
and how to get enough housing for all these people in an urban neighborhood near a canal are two different missions. At some point, the GCCDC and the Gowanus Canal Conservancy split into two different groups. And those groups were effectively made up of the same people, but of the environmental committee of the GCCDC. And this is the kind of natural progression that happens when neighborhood groups and community organizations gain legacy, information, databases, archives. They begin to specialize. And again, the thing that makes this group and this development different from almost everywhere else in New York is that it wasn't just trying to address economic issues, it was trying to address environmental issues. And there was no accident that this happened in the 1970s when Green Earth and everything was becoming a movement culturally. And what seems to be going on is that it's happening again. Things like environmental stewardship have entered the lexicon and planning in a way that the public had never thought about before. When promoting the physical use and state of space in a community, to have a group connected to that without being directly part of the real estate development is a good thing. And what's more is that the idea, the Conservancy's idea of addressing the community and creating an idea of what shared green infrastructure could be helps everyone dream for a more livable future. I personally, since my interest in the canal began, I've seen the GCC grow its programs and reach out to the community. And I've worked with various directors to pursue educational events to draw people into the mystery and wonder that is the Guanas Canal. I got the chance to speak about my research in this environment and my fact-finding about Gowanus in a way that no one has ever appreciated until now. And this helped to tell a story of nearly 400 years of urban history. So for that alone, the Gowanus Canal Conservancy has served its community. However, there's also the Environmental Protection Agency, and they have been ushering the Gowanus Canal through a cleanup program called the Superfund, which is a federal law that addresses more than 1,300 toxic waste sites across the country. And in doing so, it regularly hosts community awareness meetings, and that is meant to disseminate information and science about what they're doing to the general public. And so community groups are often invited as official members to weigh in on their feelings about places like, in this case, the Gowanus and the Superfund cleanup. And the GCC is front and center for this. And so now their function is also to promote and defend what the future of the Gowanus will be in terms of an actual cleanup and also what the public spaces will be in the areas that were most affected by pollution. And so this is the kind of community involvement that urban planners and scholars and city officials hope to foster in the 21st century urban environment. And they also want to feel like they're in control of their environment, which is nothing new. And in fact, the cause of Gowanus pollution is why so many people are interested in how it got to be that way to begin with. How did this get here? Gowanus contains a number of passionate residents who have long advocated for the canal cleanup, and the GCC represents just one group who won in on the conversation. And because the construction of real estate around the canal is highly contentious, the GCC straddles this very delicate position of both stewarding environmental change and environmental in urban settings, and also negotiating the development of that which could be put to use in ways that it is not now. This is to say that the GCC still relies on the existence of real estate development in order to pursue the big projects they want to create, like sponge parks and restored wetland waterfronts and educational centers for Brooklynites and other New Yorkers to a hopefully one day cleaned canal. The biggest problem with real estate developers in a unique situation like the Gowanus 
which is not only a toxic waste site, but also a wetland full of raw sewage, which rose to the depths of a person's knee during Hurricane Sandy in 2013, is that uh, their reason of existence is to develop buildings, and in New York, as big as humanly possible. And the truth is that money and real estate have dictated the function of land in Brooklyn and New York since the settlement of white colonists in 1626. And this tradition continues to this day. And so the greatest goal of a developer is not to clean up the land as much as possible. Its goal is to build housing and its job is to clean it up as much as they legally have to. Because their function is not to become land stewards, but landlords, it is up to government to regulate how they do this. I often say that real estate developers are like thunderstorms. There's no point in getting mad at them for what they do. They are what they are but the government is like an umbrella. And because the goal of developers and engaging with groups like the GCC is to in turn engage with the communities and build support for their structures, it means that something has changed. Although developers do hold immense power via money and politics in New York, they still fear the reaction of communities and now more than ever, especially after the infamous implosion of the Amazon deal in Queens. How people perceive a development is still an important part of the real estate business and it affects the bottom line like any other issue. So groups like the GCC make a development more digestible to people by showing how the community can influence some of the space around them. In their view, the best way to get cleanup to happen is to move the people with resources to the places that need the most help. So in other words, they are like they, they believe if we build it, they will come. If we build these buildings, the people who want a cleaner canal will come and make it happen. Today, it seems like this may be true because there are more developments along the canal and the EPA is cleaning it up. But the EPA cleanup actually happened in spite of the development. And vice versa, uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg and his successor, Bill de Blasio, who was the councilman in Gowanus during this time, fought very hard against the Superfund because of the stigma that it would have caused in their view. And they thought any harm to the possibility of real estate going into Gowanus, such a blighted area, would be completely ruined by a super fund, and it wouldn't actually help the canal clean up any faster. As it turned out, they were totally wrong because the super fund did happen, and development along the canal is even much more than it ever has been before. And the super fund has actually become a sort of symbol of what is good and true about the Gowanus neighborhood. It has finally gotten the attention that it deserves. And in fact, some people are wondering why the EPA is taking so long. It is all of these interests that bring pilot projects like the Sponge Park to the Gowanus Canal. And it requires a huge amount of resources and it is interest in environmentalism that brings such interesting pilot projects to places like the Gowanus Canal. And it takes a lot of gestalt and, and resources for places like the GCC to create such projects. In its ideal form, there would be sponge parks on every block in Park Slope, catching the water as it flows downhill during rainstorms and stopping it from entering the sewer system that ultimately overflows into the Gowanus. But the designers of this sponge park will tell you that they had to go through no less than two dozen organizations to get the park constructed and it's no more the size of, than a small truck. And the resources it would take to put these sponge parks everywhere to make a difference are great. And the initiative needs as much support as the desires of folks making real estate happen. And right now, one sponge park is a great idea, but it's like trying to soak up an overflowing bathtub with a sponge. The GCC will also say that working with developers is better than fighting them 
because the battles that can be won will make a difference. It seems today that they have more of a strong reaction to the city's plans than anyone succumbing to the new Gowanus rezoning that is currently in discussion, which revolves around 30-story buildings and development well beyond what anyone in the community ever envisioned. There are no environmental or green infrastructure plans built into the current zoning proposal that the city is hoping to push for Gowanus. The response from the GCC was furious, for lack of a better word. They worked very closely with the city and the developers and all of these different arms of government to create a vision of Gowanus that could be satisfying to everyone. And instead, they were handed a plan that had been wholly undiscussed. Um, and all the promises in the community meetings and the green infrastructure zoning and the open houses and the town halls that would result in a plan that took community input seriously was invisible. The response from the city's zoning plan seems pretty clear, and its message was, thanks for your input. If you don't see it in the wall, then it's not in the plan. And so perhaps for the first time, the Gowanus Canal Conservancy tasted the reality of living in a place where all stories are ultimately real estate stories. And so now, on top of environmental stewardship and education and cleaning up trash, the Gowanus Canal Conservancy has become an activist group that pushes for better zoning practices in New York. I just don't think they realize it yet. And if we're lucky, we will view this decade of environmentalism as a revival of a philosophy that not only is taking care of our immediate environment, good for our health, but it is part of the success of our society as a whole. Luckily, fostering environmental change is something that is becoming very interesting to our youth, which is pretty logical because they're the ones that are gonna have to deal with it. Designing urban spaces that incorporate difficult to manage environments like wetlands and floodplains would ultimately result in a more peaceful way of living in which nature does not overwhelm us with its power during massive hurricanes and ocean swells. And during the time of the inevitable sea rise, the wisdom of taking note of what has happened when we ignore the power of nature is at the forefront of what the GCC studies. And practically anyone who spends time in Gowanus and saw how high up the water came knows that this is an issue that affects everyone. As humans, we love to try to control our environments. And as I said before, progress has been the main culprit in the mission of the Gowanus Canal. So we are often just puttering along, trying to figure out how things work, doing our best. And so because the first sewer designers in America were actually railroad engineers, who were given new tasks that no one had ever attempted before. Innovation is the legacy of Gowanus. Industry was born there and thrived in ways that only happen in urban settings where people can be close to each other and exchange ideas. For example, coal tar is a toxic chemical, but it also has numerous applications, many of which were developed along the Gowanus Canal. There is no coincidence that a factory that uses coal tar would pop up next to a manufactured gas plant that dumps coal tar. And now today, the GCC members speak at panels and conferences about environmental infrastructure and climate change. And they are a force to be reckoned with within city organizations on a number of potential projects of fostering green developments in this former salt marsh and wetland. These kinds of green zoning ideas are concepts that are still in their native phases in many ways. And the natural history of the Gowanus more than ever dictates a part of the GCC's mission as cleaning the pollution opens up new possibilities for public urban waterways in New York and actually across the world. Because as I've discovered in my many years of leading tours around the Gowanus Canal, people from Japan to, you know, Colombia 
want to know how it is that we're dealing with this problem. Because New York, like it or not, is a place that everyone looks for creative ideas. And however as much as they educate on environmental history, it is important to remember that built into the GCC's DNA is the promotion of real estate development in a former industrial thoroughfare. But none of these words are meant to be dirty words. By taking public sites and advocating for their best use, the Gowanus Canal Conservancy creates the spaces for conversations about what 21st century urban environmentalism means. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcast at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History.